Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming. I'm Abby Algar, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm Ben Delgado, the Assistant Film Programmer. And today we're going to discuss the latest offerings in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, as well as recommending some other titles to view at home. So new in the virtual screening room this week, we have Rose Plays Julie, a psychological thriller from Irish filmmaking duo Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler about a young veterinary student trying to reconnect with her birth mother. And this one is returning from last year's AFI European Union Film Showcase. We have The Inheritance, filmmaker Ephraim Asili's feature-length debut, an astonishing ensemble work loosely inspired by Jean-Luc Godard's 1967 film La Chinoise and set almost entirely within a West Philadelphia house where a community of young black activists and artists are forming a collective. We have Quo Vadis Aida, the 2021 Oscar selection from Bosnia and Herzegovina and nominee actually for best international feature film. And this one's about a translator working in a UN camp in Bosnia in the days and hours leading up to the 1995 Srebrenica massacre. We also have Perfumes, a delightful grown-up comedy from French director Gregory Mang starring Emmanuel DeVos as a master perfumer who strikes up an unlikely friendship with her troubled new chauffeur. We have The Fever, the evocative, poetic feature debut from Brazilian filmmaker and visual artist Maya Darin, which is returning to us from last year's AFI Latin American Film Festival. And lastly, we have Wojnarowicz, a fiery documentary portrait of downtown New York artist, writer, photographer, and activist, David uh, Wojnarowicz, right up to his untimely death in 1992 at the age of 37. This week, we're going to discuss all of the new films premiering this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, and also briefly recap some of our most popular titles that opened in previous weeks and are also currently available to screen there. We also have a few special announcements about upcoming festivals and events to share with you, and we'll close out with our programmer's pick section where we discuss other ideas for films to watch at home. And you can check out the episode description of this podcast. If you'd like to scroll ahead to a particular section, you'll find kind of a table of contents and time codes there for that. This is episode 38 of Silver Streams, and we began this podcast approximately one year ago in April of 2020, shortly after we closed the doors to the AFI Silver Theater and launched our virtual cinema program. And we'd like to thank everyone out there who has been listening to the podcast. It's been amazing to see the numbers grow over this past year, including so many listeners from abroad. We've had listeners uh, from over 30 countries now, uh, which is just just amazing to see. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And anyone who's interested in our past episodes can listen to those as well. You can go back and listen to all of our past episodes, including episodes like uh, our most recent all-new episode, episode 37, where we discussed the 1931 version of Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. Uh, which uh, Dracula just marked its 90th anniversary a few weeks back. Or episode 36, where we discussed Martin Scorsese's classic Taxi Driver, which recently 
celebrated its 45th anniversary. So thank you all for listening to the Silver Streams podcast. And also a big thank you to everyone out there for screening films at home from our virtual screening room. By screening these films at home, you are supporting AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction that you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during our extended physical closure. Thank you all for supporting the Silver during these challenging times. And a reminder, you can find all of the titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com silver. And if you ever have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com. You can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com silver in our Friday e-blasts and across our social media channels. And we are in all the places where you usually find your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. That way you are notified immediately when we put up the podcast every Friday uh, in your app of choice. And while you're there subscribing, if you haven't already subscribed, thank you to our subscribers and to our new subscribers. Uh, please go ahead and rate it. Um, rate the, the show as a whole. Give us a, a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. Really love to see that. And any comments you want to make there uh, are also really helpful for us. Um, we've seen a few few new ratings. So thank you to, to those who've taken time to, to rate the show. And of course, uh, just tell your friends and family, spread the word organically. Uh, it's really the best way to uh, get the word out about Silver Streams. And a big thank you, uh, as always, to everyone who went over to our virtual screening room and watched a film or two or three this past weekend. Uh, Minari continues to be our big hit. And uh, this one from director Lee Isaac Chung was just nominated for six different Oscars, uh, Best Score, Supporting Actress, Actor, Screenplay, Director, and Best Picture. The film stars Steven Yeun and is a semi-autobiographical look at growing up on a farm with immigrant parents uh, trying their best to live the American dream. Screenings for this particular film start at 8 o'clock Eastern each day, and you have until Sunday uh, the 21st as of this recording uh, to watch it, so a few more opportunities. And if you do watch it, um, which I hope you do, uh, you'll have four hours to start the film uh, once the screening window opens at eight and four hours to finish it once you've started to play to play the film. Uh, this particular screening also features an exclusive Q&A with the cast and crew that plays immediately after the film. So stick around for that. And speaking of Oscar nominated films, uh, we still have in our screening room another round. This is the Danish Oscar nominee starring Mads Mikkelsen which just secured its nomination for Best International Feature and Best Director for Tomas Vinterberg. It's a comedic drama about a group of teachers having a midlife crisis in which they decide to drink just enough to maintain a buzz at all times. Uh, it's a holdover from our EU Film Showcase from back in December, and it continues to be a hit in the virtual screening room. Uh, Collective was also just nominated for two Oscars. The Romanian doc picked up Best International Feature nomination as well and a Best Documentary Feature nomination. Uh, that one's still available in the screening room and one of the front runners uh, in both categories that it was nominated for. Uh, this week, we also open Go Vadis Aida, which Abby mentioned at the top of the show. And that one just secured its nomination for Best International Feature Oscar as well. So a handful of, of just announced uh, Oscar nominees and we're rooting for all of them. 
And then beyond the now double Oscar nominated collective, we have a bunch of other really excellent documentaries that continue to be popular in the virtual screening room, including Gustav Stickley, American Craftsman, a documentary about the life and work of iconic furniture designer and architect Gustav Stickley, who is generally considered to be the father of the American arts and crafts movement. We also have Stray, a documentary following three stray dogs as they find human companionship on the streets in Turkey. And obviously that's a personal favorite of mine because, well, dogs. There's also MC Escher, Journey to Infinity, a documentary about world famous Dutch graphic artist MC Escher, which is narrated by British actor Stephen Fry. And then we have the documentary 17 Blocks, which follows four generations of one Washington DC family over the course of two decades. And of course, as you can imagine, that's been very popular in the virtual screening room. And we have Coup 53, a documentary look at the 1953 Anglo-American coup that overthrew Iran's government and reinstalled the Shah. And then we also have The People vs. Agent Orange, which is a documentary about two women, one American, one Vietnamese, who are leading a worldwide movement to stop the use of toxic agricultural chemicals and to hold chemical manufacturers responsible for 40 years of cover-up around Agent Orange. And rounding out the top slate in our virtual screening room this past week is The Good Trader. And this film was actually our most popular title last week. This is the story of the Danish ambassador to the United States in 1940, Henrik Kaufman, played by the actor Ulrich Thompson. And Kaufman used all of his cunning and connections to resist Hitler and the Nazi government after his country, Denmark, had surrendered to Nazi Germany in the early days of World War II. Also, Concrete Plans. This is a twisty construction site thriller set in the Welsh countryside. And it's also the debut film from Will Jewell. We also have Fukushima 50, about the brave workers who put their lives at risk to contain the meltdown in 2011 at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in Japan. And that event just this past week, uh, we commemorated the 10th anniversary of that terrible event. Also, The Affair, a drama set in Czechoslovakia on the eve of World War II. And this film is based on author Simon Maurer's novel, The Glass Room. And it stars a wonderful international cast, including Carice Van Houten, Klaus Bang, Hannah Alstrom, and Alexandra Borbelli. And then still going strong, we have two films, Sin and Dear Comrades, both directed by the Russian filmmaker Andrei Konchalovsky, who's enjoying kind of a late career renaissance here in his 80s with these two outstanding films. Sin is a Michelangelo biopic, historical drama. And Dear Comrades is about the brutal suppression of a strike that took place in the Soviet Union back in 1962. Well, speaking of things doing well in the virtual screening room, we have just closed out the Capital Irish Film Festival last weekend, uh, which was really fantastic. And a big, big thanks to all of you who attended virtually. Um, 
But actually, we've already announced the lineup for our next virtual festival, which is going to be this year's new African Film Festival uh, that's going to run April 1st to 18th. This is going to be the 17th edition of the festival. And some of you may remember that the 16th edition uh, in March last year was basically the last festival we were able to have in person in the theater. And we actually had to close uh, a few days before that was set to end. So it's kind of strange to think that was all a year ago, but nevertheless, we are forging ahead this year online with the festival. And we have a really, really strong, diverse lineup. We are opening um, with Masutu filmmaker, Lemahang Jeremiah Masese's multi-award winning drama, This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection, winner of the World Cinema Dramatic Special Jury Award at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival, and also the first film um, from the Soto to be submitted to the Academy Awards. And in fact, Masese's um, previous film, Mother I'm Suffocating, This Is My Last Film About You, was in last year's festival lineup. So we're really excited to have him return uh, with his follow-up so soon. And then beyond the opening selection, uh, this year's festival includes 33 films from 26 countries. It includes six submissions for the Academy Award for Best International Feature, including the opening film. And then we close the festival with a new Tuco restoration of Tunisian director Farid Boubadir's landmark survey of African cinema, Camera d'Afrique. Uh, which was originally selected to close last year's edition of the festival, which of course, unfortunately, we weren't able to do. And so we are really happy to come full circle and finally be able to show this film in the festival virtually, um, along with an exclusive Q&A with, with the filmmaker himself. So there's lots to enjoy and it's just $125 or 110 if you're an AFI member for a pass, which gives you access to everything in the lineup, all 33 films. So if you're planning to check out a few of these, um, it is a great way to save some money and you know see a bunch of really excellent films that you honestly will not get to see pretty much anywhere else. And speaking of festivals uh, of the virtual kind, uh, coming up on March 26th, we'll begin the Spanish Cinema Now Plus series. Uh, that one runs through May 30th, and we're doing this in partnership with Spain Arts and Culture, um, as we do every year for the Spanish Cinema Now Festival uh, in June. In this case, this is a selection of outstanding new films that reflect the breadth and, of styles and talents uh, at work in Spain today, including both established auteurs and emerging filmmakers from the international festival scene. Uh, this small series is a lead up to two Spanish cinema now proper in June, uh, the 2021 edition. Uh, as I mentioned, it starts on March 26, and this one will open with the film Madre uh, from Spanish director Rodrigo Saragoyan, um, whose film The Realm actually um, opened up Spanish cinema now uh, back in 2019, the last time we were able to do the festival um, Pre-COVID, of course, um, and filled up our theater one. It was it was a big, big to do and a really fun film. Um, this one, a bit of a different kind of a story. Uh, it builds on his Oscar-nominated 2017 short of the same name. It's a slow burn thriller about a mother grappling with the loss of her son. Uh, the next film that we'll be featuring is Fire Will Come, and that one opens on April 23rd in the virtual screening room. 
It's Oliver Lax's uh, film, his third feature, a very powerful film about an arsonist in rural Galicia who returns home to live with his mother after getting out of prison. And finally, we'll wrap up this uh, small series with A Thief's Daughter on May 14th, and that one will run through May 30th, which will end the festival. And it's an award-winning directorial debut film from writer-director Belen Funes. Um, it's a really searing working-class drama um, that features a star-making performance from the lead here, Greta Fernandez, um, as Sarah, a 22-year-old new mother who's juggling minimum wage jobs while fighting for custody of her half-brother to keep him out of foster care system. Uh, think something like the Darden brothers, um, I would say, if you want a point of comparison for that one. So that's Spanish Cinema Now Plus, um, starting really soon on March 26th. And somewhat similar to what we're doing with Spanish Cinema Now Plus, we have a, a number of, of things coming up right now that are either uh, co-presentations or screening series in the lead up to the actual festival. So uh, the, the first one to tell you about is uh, happening right now, and that is the Environmental Film Festival in the nation's capital. And we are happy to once again be partnering with this excellent festival, which last year's edition was a casualty of the early weeks of the COVID pandemic. So it's especially good to see them carrying on this year with an online edition, which features a ton of great films. The festival is running now through March 28th, and the two films that we are co-presenting with the Environmental Film Festival are Stray, and that is the Turkish dog doc that you heard Abby talk a little bit about uh, earlier, uh, just a few minutes back. Uh, and another animal documentary of sorts, Gunda, which is a wonderful, immersive, cinema verite kind of film, executive produced by Joaquin Phoenix. And Gunda takes the audience into this shared experience with several animals on a farm, including a pair of cows, a, a magnificent one-legged chicken, uh, and the titular star of, of the film, Gunda, a mother pig who has just given birth to a litter of piglets. You can see the full lineup of films featured in this year's Environmental Film Festival on their website, dceff.org. But in the case of both Gunda and Stray, you can click through uh, on both of those films from our website, afi.com silver over to the Environmental Film Festival site. And then the other series, and this one is very similar in concept to Spanish Cinema Now Plus that we have going on uh, starting this upcoming week, uh, it'll kick off on Wednesday, March 24, is the DC Labor Film Fest Spring Screening Series. And we've We've never done this before. We've maybe talked about sort of the concept, but this is the first year that we're doing it. So in May, we will once again present uh, a version, an online version of the DC Labor Film Fest, which we've been um, co-presenting uh, for many years now. Um, but this screening series will sort of be the countdown uh, lead in to, to the new edition of, of this year's film festival. Uh, so this is a number of films that are already currently playing in the virtual screening room for AFI Silver, but they're going in each case, they're going to be special events uh, featuring intros uh, and Q&As uh, presented by the, the Labor Film Festival. So it'll kick off Wednesday, March 24 with Dear Comrades, and then every Wednesday through through the next several weeks, so there'll be another uh, another presentation. So Wednesday, March 31, Identifying Features. 
Wednesday, April 7, Lapsus, and Wednesday, April 14th, Martin Eden. And, and that one I want to uh, particularly highlight for listeners because all of these will feature uh, some kind of post-screening Q&A uh, with, with various people involved in uh, either labor movement or, or academics who uh, specialize in labor history. But the speaker we're going to have for April 14, Martin Eden, we're super excited about. Uh, filmmaker and novelist John Sales is going to discuss Martin Eden. And I think that's going to be a, a really unique and interesting discussion. And I think probably most of you out there are aware Martin Eden has been one of our big hits in the virtual screening room over the past several months. Uh, so uh, even if you've already seen it, it might be worth tuning back in for that one. Uh, accompanied by the discussion with uh, uh, the post-screening discussion with John Sales. And then, as I mentioned, look for the full lineup of, of the new 2021 edition of DC Labor Film Fest coming in May. Okay, so that's what's coming up with our screening series and special events. Here are the new films debuting in the virtual screening room this week. And first up is Rose Plays Julie, which is coming to us from Film Movement. And as I mentioned earlier, is returning from last year's AFI EU Film Showcase. And Rose Plays Julie is a really excellent psychological thriller, verging on psychological horror at times, actually, from the Irish filmmaking duo Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler, who are also known as Desperate Optimists, and whose previous films, like Further Beyond, Helen, Mr. John, have all dealt in one way or another with ideas around impersonation and identity and the slippery nature of truth and identity and even reality. And Rose Plays Julie fits right into their filmography as a drama about a young veterinary student named Rose, played by Irish actress Anne Skelly, who you might know from the Irish drama Kissing Candice from a couple of years ago. And Rose becomes obsessed with finding her birth mother after she learns from her parents that she was adopted. And counter to what you might expect in a more conventional treatment of this subject matter, the film's central mystery doesn't really revolve around Rose actually finding her birth mother, which she is able to do pretty quickly and without too much incident, even if it kind of involves some low-level stalking, but rather around what happens in the aftermath of finding her birth mother and the disturbing revelations that ensue. So when Rose contacts her birth mother, Ellen, who's played by Irish actress Orla Brady, who you might know from TV shows like American Horror Story and Collateral, during what happens to be a difficult semester for Rose, uh, studying animal euthanasia as part of veterinary school, uh, she's disappointed to learn that Ellen really has no interest in revisiting the past. She's now a successful actress living and working in London. She has a family of her own. And it's clear that Rose's presence is bringing up some really difficult and painful memories for her. And what these difficult and painful memories are slowly become the crux of Rose's kind of investigation and the central mystery of the film as she starts to look into the circumstances surrounding her birth and ultimately to confront her biological father, Peter. And Peter is played by the very, very prolific Irish actor, Aidan Gillen, who you've probably seen in a million films, but most well-known for being Littlefinger in Game of Thrones. And Rose makes this confrontation basically by posing as an intern named Julie on an archaeological dig 
that Peter is leading. And this is where things start to get kind of complicated and honestly in part slightly twisted as Rose starts to take on this whole new identity and begins to maybe, or actually maybe not, lose her grip on reality. Um, and at the same time, though, it is actually Rose who has the power and the knowledge in this situation. And she uses it to turn the tables on all expectations. Um, and the story itself goes in directions that you probably would never expect or um, actually condone either in some respects. So this film is a slow burn thriller about identity and trauma. It's filled with ideas about truth and artifice in a way that actually almost borders on a meta commentary about cinema itself and storytelling and acting you know remember one of the main characters in this film Rose's birth mother is making her living as an actress the film has echoes of Hitchcock's Vertigo David Lynch's Mulholland Drive uh, even Brian De Palma's Body Double I'm going to throw that one in there too but here in contrast to those films the gaze is decidedly female and ultimately the film turns into kind of a me too narrative about power and its abuses and unmasking these things ironically in this case through deception so i really recommend this film if you're into crime thrillers psychological thrillers horror films even um, and again, this is a film from last year's EU Film Showcase that we're really glad to be able to bring back and give more people a chance to, to actually see it. And also, if you're missing the Capital Irish Film Festival already, which I know we are, um, it's a great way to keep that going for a little bit longer, too. So a big thumbs up from me. Yeah, Abby, this is a big thumbs up from me as well. I, I really, really enjoyed this film. And uh, I think uh, this uh, directing team of Joe Lawler and Christine Malloy uh, I think they've really got the goods. So don't be surprised if you hear from them again soon, uh, perhaps making a film in the U.S., perhaps directing an episode of, of your favorite series. Uh, I think we'll be hearing more from them very soon. And uh, a big part of what uh, made it work for me uh, were, were the central performances and, and Skelly in the lead and uh, Orla Brady, I was really impressed with as well. And uh, the film, it, it delivers on what you think you're going to be interested in in terms of the basic setups uh of the plot but it's it's surprising where and, and abby you kind of alluded to this and we don't want to spoil anything for anybody but it's it's very hard to um to guess where it's 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 going to go ultimately uh which i think is to the credit of the of the script and and the execution um by the directing team here Re really great film and and a great way to continue on with the success of the capital irish film festival that we just closed out uh, last weekend, uh, having this film very conveniently opening this week. Yeah, absolutely. And Ola Brady and Anne Skelly are both really, really good here, especially Anne Skelly, who kind of is basically in every frame of the film. Uh, it really does revolve around her. And then I'll also say Aidan Gillen is, is really, really good here too. Um, he's really good at playing these characters who are kind of deceptively charming, but also really, really creepy and just a bit wrong at the same time, a bit like Littlefinger in uh, Game of Thrones. So I think he, he was just absolutely perfectly cast here and he, he does a great job in what could have been a really, really thankless uh, role. So yeah, big credit to all the, all the acting talent here. And of course, to, the, to this great directing duo. Okay, so that is Rose Plays Julie and it's coming to us from Film Movement. And next up in the virtual screening room, we have The Inheritance. 
the feature directorial debut from experimental writer-director Efrem Azili, who has been working steadily in short films for about the past decade, focusing on the African diaspora. Uh, the film takes place in a black radical collective where a young man turns his grandmother's home in West Philadelphia into a shared living space for socialist thought and creativity. The inheritance of the title that is, uh, that home. Uh, the project is quite personal for Azili, uh, a Philadelphia native who first encountered collective living through the Black Liberation Group MOVE uh, based out of Philadelphia uh, when he was a teen in the late 1990s. MOVE was founded by John Africa in 1972 and a communal group still exists and they champion human rights, police reform, animal rights, and organic, natural, raw food movements, among many other causes that um, align pretty neatly with Azili's own experiences in communal living. Um, the film wears its Godardian influences on its sleeve. In fact, Azili has said that he wanted to make, uh, quote unquote, what is in reggae, a version, or in hip hop, a remix of La Chinoise, a critique and an homage at the same time. And of course, La Chinoise is uh, director Jean-Luc Godard's 1967 film about the rising radical youth movements of Paris at the time, uh, which itself also took place in a fictional communal home. And like that film, The Inheritance is also a blend of fiction and documentary with plenty of bright colors and key figures in their respective movements living and creating collectively. There's even a little shout out to La Chinoise uh, in an extended scene where uh, someone makes a smoothie, and there's a big poster of La Chinoise uh, up, in, up behind her uh, on a red wall. In the film, there's poetry readings, interviews, archival footage, and of course, this fictional narrative that weaves throughout the entire piece. And it provides plenty of laughs, uh, that narrative, especially when it comes to uh, the trials of uh, shared living. Among the poets uh, featured here in the film are poet activist uh, and icon Sonia Sanchez and the Philadelphia legend Ursula Rucker. And members of the MOVE Collective um, are also interviewed in the film and present some of their teachings, along with archival footage from the 1985 bombing by the Philadelphia Police Department of their home on Osage Avenue. And speaking of archival footage, uh, there's also footage of Shirley Chisholm's presidential run featured here in the film. It's really chock full of black radical collectivist socialist creativity. And of course, I'm all the way here for it. Uh, the movie was basically made for me. Um, I don't know if listeners have gotten to know me throughout this, this year of podcasting, but uh, it really was. Uh, it kind of ticks all my boxes. Uh, but even if that's not the case for you, if it's not a film that you think immediately grabs you, um, I think there's really a ton of information here to digest, and it's all presented in a really fun package. So I highly recommend checking out The Inheritance in, in the virtual screening room this week. So, Ben, clearly this is a, a film that you are, are really taken with, um, and you're, 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 you're selling it very well, uh, including the part about uh, the connections with the Godard film uh, La Chinoise, which... I think all three of us are big, big fans of. So this is one that I was not able to see for myself uh, during the Toronto uh, online edition of the Toronto Film Festival. So I'll be catching up on this one soon. And, and then we can compare notes, including the La Chinoise connections.
Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of connections with La Chinoise, and um, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, as everyone can tell, I'm a big fan. It, it was one that I, I made sure to, to catch up with uh, in, in that festival, and that went on to play the New York Film Festival uh, right after virtually. Um, so it's, it's one of those films that um, I fear would get stuck in a festival, um, but really happy to see that Grasshopper picked it up and we're able to play it in, in the virtual screening room now. Um, Cause we see a lot of things in festivals that are maybe a little bit smaller, a little bit more niche um, and just kind of get stuck on the circuit and never get released. But uh, I'm glad this one is getting a release now. Well, firstly, Ben, any film that wears its Goddardian influences on its sleeve is just fine by me. And I'm sure by Todd too. And of course by you, as we heard, um, but I also want to mention that just like Rose Plays Julie is a really great bookend to the Capital Irish Film Festival. This is actually a really great precursor to the new African Film Festival, um, which is happening April 1st to 18th. Uh, as you mentioned, um, Ephraim Asili has focused heavily on exploring facets of the African diaspora and Pan-African identity in his work, especially in his short films, as, as you mentioned. And if you like The Inheritance, you can actually see five of those short films, uh, the ones that make up Asili's The Diaspora Suite, which spans work from 2010 to 2017, in Film at Lincoln Center's virtual screening room right now. So yeah, you can watch The Inheritance in our virtual screening room, head to film at Lincoln Center's virtual screening room for the Diaspora Suite, and then come back to our virtual screening room for the New African Film Festival in, uh, in April. I hope everyone wrote that down. I, I like those instructions. Start Very detailed with, instructions. Start with the inheritance here. <laughs> go over to film at Lincoln Center. Come right back for NAF. That's perfect. And I think I need to do the same. I need to, to actually catch up with those shorts. But, but you're right. It's a, it's a perfect lead-in for for NAF, um, there's uh, not only do the shorts uh, concentrate on the African diaspora, I think the inheritance is also very strongly uh, influenced by that and has uh, a lot to say about the diaspora as well. So um, even if you don't make it to the shorts, at least check out the inheritance and um, I'm, sure you'll, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, again, that is The Inheritance, a new film by Ephraim Azili. Uh, from our friends at Grasshopper Film. Also opening in our virtual screening room this week is Quo Vadis Aida. And this is the latest film from Bosnia's Yasmila Zabanitz. And her previous films uh, include Gerbavica back in 2006, which won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival. And just earlier this week, Quo Vadis Aida was nominated for the Oscars Best International Film Category. In addition to Gerbavica, Zabonet's other films have included On the Path and For Those Who Can Tell No Tales. And all of these films dealt with aspects of the aftermath of the Yugoslav Wars from the 1990s, specifically the war in Bosnia. But all of these films were set years after the, the actual war, again, dealing with the legacy and, and the aftermath. And in her latest film, um, Quo Vadis Aida, this is the first time that she has addressed wartime events as they happened. In this case, the perpetration of the massacre of some 8,000 Muslim men and boys from the Bosnian town of Srebrenica in July 1995. The town of Srebrenica had been declared a UN safe haven until it was overrun by the Bosnian Serb army led by General Rako Mladic. 
Mladic went underground uh, following these events and following the end of the war, end of hostilities, and was a fugitive from justice for many years until he was finally caught in 2011 and later convicted in 2017 in The Hague for Crimes Against Humanity. Quo Vadis Aida recreates the events in Srebrenica in the summer of 1995, and then also revisits the town a few years later after peace has been brokered. All of this as witnessed by our main character, Aida, played by Jasna Jurisitz, who works as a UN translator and as such enjoys a certain amount of protection and free passage in and around the UN compound where she works. And this is a freedom not afforded to the rest of her townspeople after the town is besieged by the Bosnian Serb army, including her Muslim husband and sons, who she does her best to hide during the initial phase of the armies pressuring the overwhelmed, outmatched UN peacekeeping forces to stand aside while the, the Bosnian Serbs round up the town's Muslim male population under false pretenses of temporary detention, when of course they're to be executed. And by telling the story this way, through this character, Aida's eyes, this is the masterstroke that allows Zabanitz to tell the story from all sides, as Aida is uniquely able to circulate among these various sides, the tyrannicized townspeople, the murderous aggressors of the Bosnian Serb army and their propaganda and rationalizations. It's very attuned to the communication strategy that's, that's taking place in this kind of slow motion siege and, and detention and execution unfolding as well as the UN peacekeepers led by Dutch officers, uh, who again are, are simply outmatched, outwitted, and, and constrained uh, by the narrowness of their orders. As we see this situation unfold, moving slowly, inexorably to the rounding up and transport of the men, we're attuned enough to the situation to know they're not coming back. The movie doesn't have to depict the executions per se. Instead, we move on to an epilogue scene many years later where some version of normality has returned to daily life, although now Serb families live in the homes of the dead and disappeared, and the identification of human remains takes place at the community center. This is a powerfully told story that does justice to the horrific events from this time. For those of you who may be rusty on your Latin, Quo Vadis translates to Where Are You Going?, and was the title of an 1896 book by Poland's Nobel laureate Henryk Sienkiewicz, but most popularly associated with the 1951 MGM film based on that novel, which was a Hollywood retelling of the final years of Emperor Nero's terroristic reign over Rome, starring Robert Taylor and Deborah Carr. So why is this title part of the title for this film about the Yugoslav wars in the 90s? The phrase Quo Vadis derives from the Acts of Peter, which is an apocryphal New Testament text, and tells how Peter fled Rome for his safety, but when confronted with this question, ultimately found the courage to return and face his destiny, which was unfortunately for him his eventual crucifixion. So I can only surmise that in the case of Zabanitz's movie, the phrase addresses the duty that she felt in making this movie and that her character Aida experiences in the course of the story arc. And I hope that for you, uh, the viewers, you'll also make it a priority to see this excellent film. As I mentioned at the top, Quo Vadis Aida is Bosnia-Herzegovina's official Oscar selection and was just this week nominated uh, for the Oscars Best International Film category, but also recently the film received two BAFTA nominations, uh, one for Best Film Not in the English Language and also Best Director 
for Zabanitz. Um, so further accolades coming to this excellent, excellent film, which I hope you'll check out. Pleasant surprise for all three of us when we heard the Oscar nominations earlier this week and that this was in fact included in the list for Best International Feature because it was a film that all three of us saw and really, really loved, I think, in, in the virtual Toronto Film Festival. And, you know, at the time we were all really impressed, but wondered, you know, where, you know, where was it going to end up? Was it going to get distribution? How would we be able to show it? That kind of thing. And here we are. Now we're able to show it. So really happy about that and really, really happy about the Oscar nomination. Uh, absolutely. Uh, very well deserved. And I mean, who knows? I think this uh, particular category is is anyone's guess who the actual winner is going to be this year. And I think a film like Quo Vadis Aida has uh, as good a chance as any of the five nominees to be the eventual winner. Uh, however that may play out, uh, we can all, I think, recommend it simply on the merits that it's an excellent film and really, really does a good job um, an amazing job of of addressing these events from 1995. Again, I think the conception of how she told the story, and and, and I've read a, a couple of interviews with the director that this was something she, for many years, she didn't want to make this film. She didn't want to have to be the one to tell this painful, understandably painful story. And I'm I'm guessing that the idea of, of how to tell it through this particular character arrived at some point, and and she she saw a way into it, and it. It really works amazingly well to to do, like I said, to do justice to the story um, all around um, and uh, highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, I guess I'll just all third my recommendation. Um, I don't think there's much more for me to add, except that in this uh, young 2021, it, it sits at the top of my best films for the year. So if, if that's any uh, any use to anyone out there who is still on the fence about this movie, I think Kovada Saida so far it is the best film for my money of 2021. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I have to agree. I, I haven't uh, really started to assemble such a list, but I, I imagine this one is going to, if, and when I do that, this, this one would be among the top choices for me as, as well. And uh, for what it's worth, we, we opened the film a few days before this podcast is going out live. And I know we already have a lot of sales on it. So uh, word is out and, and people do seem to be uh, motivated to, to check it out. So I hope, I hope some of our listeners uh, on this podcast will will also do so. So once again, that is Quo Vadis Aida, the recently Oscar-nominated Quo Vadis Aida. And that is coming to us from our friends at Super Limited. Well, next up is a very different type of film. Um, that's Perfumes coming to us from Distrib Films. And this is a delightful, refreshing, even fragrant French comedy about an unlikely friendship between a divorced middle-aged Parisian chauffeur uh, named Guillaume, played by Gregory Montel, who you might know from the French TV series Call My Agent, and uptight fragrance designer, or professional nose as it's known in the business, Mademoiselle Anne Wahlberg, who's played by beloved French actress Emmanuelle DeVos, uh, who got her big break in Jacques Audiard's 2001 film, Read My Lips, for which she won a Caesar Award. And of course, has been a consistent presence in quality French cinema ever since. So Guillaume, the chauffeur, is having a hard time of it. He's in a custody battle with his ex-wife. He's trying to make enough money to get a better apartment so he can have permission to have his 11-year-old daughter stay with him. He's frequently in trouble at work. Uh, he's constantly being threatened with 
termination by his boss if he earns any more points on his license for speeding, which seems to be a regular occurrence for him. And he's just generally in kind of a difficult patch in his life. And it's at this point that he is assigned to drive for Anne Wahlberg, who's a fading star of the perfume industry, uh, who once created fragrances for design labels, including Dior's famed J'adore but who is currently working as a kind of nose for hire, consulting uh, for really exorbitant fees on various scent-related projects for supermarkets and clothing brands, and even handbag designers who are looking to cover up the smell of cheap leather. But even if professionally Anne has kind of sold out and lost her passion for perfume, she is certainly used to the good life and to getting her way. She is rich, entitled, jaded, and frankly, pretty diva-esque. So both of these characters are kind of stuck in their respective ruts, very different ruts, obviously, when they meet. And despite the fact that they really don't have much in common and the fact that Anne initially treats Guillaume essentially like a human bag carrying and driving machine, over time, as they come to, to know each other and spend time together, the pair find lots of common ground and even find themselves striking up this kind of oddball friendship. Uh, Guillaume becomes interested in the world of high fragrance uh, and Anne takes an interest in Guillaume's life and family and money troubles, giving him this kind of much needed person to talk to. They're both lonely people and in one another, they find someone that they can share and, and talk to about things that are going on in their lives. And I think at this point in the film, after this kind of typical antagonistic first encounter and then this blooming of friendship and mutual respect, I was a bit concerned that this would turn into some kind of rom-com where this down-to-earth guy comes in and helps this middle-aged woman who's been making the terrible mistake of prioritizing her career over love and that kind of thing um, and helps her find love and compassion and meaning. Um, but it doesn't go that way. Uh, I was also concerned maybe it would be a fish out of water story with Guillaume displaying an unnatural talent for perfuming and somehow accidentally rising to the top of an industry he doesn't know anything about. But no, again, it doesn't go there. This film takes the relationship between these two characters in some unexpected directions, and it ends up being something more empowering and more interesting for both Anne and Guillaume. It's kind of a platonic rom-com that upends the tropes of the genre while also kind of paying homage to them in a way. And it's also, by the way, a really fascinating look behind the scenes of the weird world of perfume design, which honestly, I didn't even really think about as a thing. And I knew absolutely nothing about uh, before this film. So yeah, it's kind of a breath of fresh air, so to speak. Uh, Perfumes is written and directed by French filmmaker Gregory Manier, and it's only his second feature following 2012's L'Air de Rien which by the way, is also the name of a famous perfume. I don't know if there's any connection there. And it also stars uh, Gregory Montel in, in his first film role. So I'm sure we'll be seeing more of Gregory Mania and he clearly has a knack for writing very witty, nuanced, thoughtful comedy. And he does a really great job here with these two excellent actors. Well, Abby, like like you, uh, I, I think like all three of us, uh, I've I've enjoyed Emmanuel Devo's work over the years. Uh, many many films, uh, including many that we've featured in our EU Film Showcase, uh, among other places. 
but you you mentioned uh, her her co-star here, Gregory Montel, and the fact that he's best known from this series, Call My Agent. Uh, I only recently found out about this series, which I I, I take it to understand is, has been a, a big success, not only in France, but but internationally. Um, and it's it's a very meta look at the, the French uh, uh, filmmaking business uh, in, you know, run through this agency uh, with, with occasional connections to, to uh, the U.S. as well. Uh, but it's sort of like next in my queue to, uh, to take a look at. So I'm, I'm particularly motivated to, uh, to, to check out uh, this film in connection with, with that series now. Yeah, Gregory Montel is, is really good here. He has great comedic chops, but he also creates this very kind of empathetic and sweet character here who you kind of gradually become really fond of over the, the course of the film. So yeah, I've also been meaning to check out Call My Agent. I'm hoping it's something like the French version of extras along those lines, something like that. Uh, so yeah, this is this has given me further reason to to go and, and look that up now. And I hadn't heard much about the series, but now now that you guys are recommending it or interested as well, maybe I'll catch up with that. But first, I'm going to watch this movie because it sounds great. It sounds right up my alley in terms of a, a light French comedy. And, and as Todd mentioned, Emmanuel Devoe is, is really good, uh, always in, in tons and tons of French films. Um, in my mind, I kind of put her as the uh, Catherine Keener of France. Um, maybe that's not a great comparison, but that's where my mind immediately jumps when I hear her name. Yeah, she's so recognizable. It just, I feel like I've seen her in a million different French films and I don't know if she gets maybe the credit that she deserves, you know, like someone like a Juliette Binoche, for example. So yeah, this is a great, great role for her. And um, yeah, I think you'll enjoy it then. It's, it's, it's light, but it's not cheesy, the comedy, and it's not overly sentimental or, you know, romanticized. So yeah, I, th I think you'll appreciate it. Okay, so that's Perfumes coming to us from Distrib Films. And the next film we're opening up in a virtual screening room this week is an encore from our 2020 Latin American Film Festival, The Fever, from Brazilian writer-director Maya Doreen. Uh, the film follows 45-year-old Justino, a Desana tribe native working as a security guard in a freight yard on the harbor in the industrial city of Manus surrounded by the Amazon forest. Uh, he lives on the outskirts of town in a pretty modest house uh, with his youngest daughter, Vanessa, who works as a nurse in a local clinic. Uh, one day she's accepted into a program to study medicine in Brasilia, and Justino is suddenly overcome with a, a mysterious fever that won't subside uh, just as soon as he hears this news. Uh, it causes him to fall asleep on the job and gives him hallucinations of an unidentifiable creature following him in the night. Far from the native village that he left two decades ago and with a looming empty nest, Justino feels totally out of place. And as the film goes on, we, we go deeper and deeper into the issues of discrimination that he's facing and unfair labor practices and how the haunting creature that he keeps seeing kind of represents all of these negative things chasing him and pushing him uh, to maybe go back to his ancestral home. The film is an evocative and poetic work from Brazilian filmmaker and visual artist Maya Darin. It's also a really charming father-daughter story with painterly imagery and naturalistic performances from the mostly non-professional cast. Uh, Regis, 
Myrupu gives a, a really standout performance in the lead role as Justino, uh, for which he was awarded the Best Actor Prize in 2019 at the Locarno Film Festival. And like many films we've been premiering in the virtual screening room as of late, um, this one had a lengthy and fruitful festival run, uh, beginning at the Locarno Film Festival where uh, that award was won in 2019, and going on to the Toronto and Chicago festivals uh, that same year. And after our festival uh, premiere of the film in September last year, uh, the film played new directors, new films in, in December at Lincoln Center. And although the film wasn't one of our top performers in, in the festival when we played it in the Latin American Film Festival, um, it, it was a film that did really well. And, and I'm happy we were able to bring it back and, and shine kind of a brighter spotlight on this gem of a movie it's a really great one and from an up-and-coming director at that um, I think people will really uh, enjoy this one well this is one that I missed in um, the Latin American Film Festival uh, last last year so I was very happy to see that uh, Kim Stern had acquired it and that it's now in virtual cinemas so I'm going to be using this opportunity to catch up on my 2020 Latin American Film Festival viewing as well. Yeah, it's, it's the perfect opportunity to do that. And uh, I know at the time when we were kind of selecting films for the festival, this is one that uh, you and I both were, were curious to, to see. And of course, all of us um, on the team, um, but we, you and I kind of had the, the coin toss of who was going to watch it and, and ended up landing to me and uh, really happy that it, I was able to see it then and uh, might even rewatch it myself. Okay, so once again, that's The Fever from our friends at Kimston. So the final film we have opening this week in our virtual screening room is Wojnarowicz, uh, a new documentary about David Wojnarowicz, the artist uh, from 80s, early 90s. And this is coming from filmmaker Chris McKim, who just last year, uh, also um, debuting in, in 2020, had the documentary Frida Got a Gun released. So... Um, a very busy moment uh, for him with these two terrific documentaries coming out uh, uh, both last year, uh, various festivals. Uh, Wojnarowicz was a Tribeca Film Festival uh, premiere. And some of you uh, perhaps remember Frida Got a Gun uh, screening as part of AFI Docs uh, in June of, of 2020. Wojnarowicz is a tremendous documentary chronicling the life and work of David Wojnarowicz, who emerged in the mid-80s New York City East Village art scene along the same time as Jean-Michel Basquiat and Keith Haring had been similarly discovered and turned into overnight sensations by the gallery scene uh, that was taking place at that time. Wojnarowicz was a painter and perhaps mainly recognized as such in, in that particular medium, but he was very much a multimedia artist, uh, including writing, photography, video, and no-wave music with his band, Three Teens Kill Four. And, and all of these efforts connect together as, as the work of a single artistic sensibility. And this sensibility informed his activist work as well. Those of you who may be familiar with Wojnarowicz's work already may be aware of this, others may not. This documentary, I think, will work both for those who are completely unfamiliar with his work going in, and for those who consider themselves to be very knowledgeable about his art, as it tells a lot about Wojnarowicz's family and life story and how that shaped the work as well. 
And then I would recommend this film also, especially for the way that it looks back at the historical context and, and the perspective gained looking back at America in the 80s and 90s from where we are now in, in 2021. McKim's documentary establishes how Wojnarowicz had endured a physically abusive upbringing by his merchant marine father. And after his mother left his father and their suburban New Jersey home, uh, he moved with her uh, to New York City in the early 1970s and here became an occasional runaway and teenage hustler in Times Square during its period of extreme sex trade seediness. And the film does a good job of establishing what the world of rundown, depressed, uh, underfunded New York City in the 1970s was actually like, long before anyone was describing it as a scene of some sort. And interviews with Fran Lebowitz and filmmaker Richard Kern are especially useful here. The film is a little unclear as to how Wojnarowicz got started with Making art, he did graduate from Manhattan's High School of Music and Art, but that's not discussed very much here. But it's very strong on describing these early years in the 1970s into the early 80s, where Wojnarowicz created interesting photographic series and graffiti stencils, as, as well as his earliest paintings. Also, the centrality of diary entries, which Wojnarowicz practiced all his life and incorporated into his art. In 1985, Wojnarowicz had a painting selected for the Whitney Biennial, and his work and the work of others had begun to sell from the very modest downtown galleries they were being exhibited in, basically pop-up galleries in a, in a lot of cases, in these kind of crummy downtown apartments and commercial storefronts. And these downtown galleries are now selling to uptown art collectors. And then suddenly the East Village isn't just a few very modest galleries. Now there are like 70 galleries that open up and then the money starts to flow in and things change and goes from there. So how to describe the work? It's painting and photography, uh, but often in collage form, incorporating text and sometimes commercial graphics. And Wojnarowicz definitely had a strong graphic sense, uh, really, really super talented in that regard with these eye-catching stencil designs and sometimes cartoon-like imagery. And then some of the work, a lot of the work actually, included graphic depictions of homosexual sex. And this, of course, led to certain controversies in political areas. Uh, this was still a period of time where the NEA was uh, uh, funding a lot of art efforts in, in America. And the work of Wojnarowicz and, and others began to be pointed at as uh, something that certain sectors of the political spectrum found offensive and wanted to make a campaign about. Regarding the paintings, Wojnarowicz said, all the paintings are diaries. That I always saw as proof of my existence. Wojnarowicz was diagnosed with HIV in 1987. And also at this time, he lost his former lover and hugely important artistic mentor, the photographer Peter Hujar, to AIDS. And Wojnarowicz's work from this point forward becomes even more confrontational and politically oriented. He was involved in Act Up and wore a hand-stenciled jacket. This was uh, included in a news report that's in the documentary. Wore this a hand-stenciled jacket to a demonstration in front of the FDA in Washington, D.C. This would have been around 1990. And on the jacket, it said, if I die, forget burial, just drop my body on the steps of the FDA. 
And I mentioned that uh, Wojnarowicz's work had become targeted, explicit, specifically targeted by NEA critics around this time. But an interesting twist, Wojnarowicz successfully sued and won his lawsuit against uh, someone who, I don't even remember the name now, it's so long ago, Donald Wildman of the American Family Association for, uh, maybe some of you will appreciate this, unlawful reproduction of his work because Wildman had taken excerpts of the work and basically just photocopied it into a pamphlet to campaign against the NEA's arts funding. And he failed to get proper permission to use that artwork. So uh, Wojnarowicz was able to successfully win his lawsuit to prevent, uh, to prevent that. Sadly, Wojnarowicz died in 1992 from AIDS at the age of just 37. The Museum of Modern Art in New York City just recently in 2018 put on a career retrospective, which is featured towards the end of, of this documentary. And this documentary was really an introduction for me to the work of Wojnarowicz. I was not very familiar with his artwork uh, going in, and I came away as an admirer. I think he was someone who was truly talented and someone who had something to say. And and not only that, but the creativity and the ability to, to realize this in striking ways. And McKim's film is up to the challenge of exploring an artist's work with outstanding pictorial and sound design. I especially enjoyed the regular presence of old tape deck answering machine messages used throughout, as well as uh, Wojnarowicz's own tape diaries, which he apparently uh, made for many, many years. And this film was produced by Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato's World of Wonder production company. Bailey and Barbato made a name for themselves with their doc, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, way back in 2000, and later made Mapplethorpe, Look at the Pictures, in 2016. But in the intervening years, they've really struck gold with several docu-series and reality programs, including Million Dollar Listing and RuPaul's Drag Race. So for a number of reasons, the art, the politics surrounding social justice, LGBTQ equity, and public health, and the 80s history, I highly recommend checking out Wojnarowicz this week. Yeah, so Todd, that movie sounds really good. This documentary sounds like something that I would, of course, love, and clearly you did. Um, but it also sounds like something that's ripe for a fictionalization, uh, a Wojnarowicz uh, story uh, done in a narrative uh, way instead of a documentary. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I'd be interested in seeing that movie. Um, of course, the the Basquiat film from Julian Schnabel, all artist first, now you know established also as a really good filmmaker, Julian Schnabel, um, starring Jeffrey Wright. Uh, well, I'd say proves that it can be done well. And uh, if anything, uh, Wojnarowicz's life story and and his time in, in that setting and, you know, his very different than Basquiat, but his explicit in involvement and engagement with the ACT UP movement and um, uh, equity issues uh, uh, for, for homosexuals and, and for people with HIV, that would, you know, well, be a very different movie. Um, but that's, you know, it's, it wasn't like he was a weekend activist. It was 100% part of his being as, as the film explains and he made good art uh, incorporating his activism. I mean, it was it was a two way street how how it worked, um, how he put himself into both things. And I, th I think that there's a number of things going on right now that are um, causing everybody to maybe look at this period of history um, differently or or, you know, 
maybe learning some lessons on whatever kind of timeline it may be for for the individual um, connected to everything with the coronavirus pandemic and understand a, a different understanding of the demands of public health policy, I guess, on this subject of of films and and television series. Uh, that comes to mind related to, to this idea is uh, Russell T. Davies' uh, recent series, It's a Sin, uh, which is really good. Um, and it's exploring a similar time time period and early days of the AIDS epidemic uh, in a, among a, a group of friends in London. Uh, actually, there, there's a little bit of uh, New York in, in the series as well. But um, yeah, I, I think that... Um, well, a lot has happened over over this period of time, and there's a lot more perspective on on what was going on or or not happening at that time. And again, through this this lens of um, the developments and and uh, I would say different expectations about public health policy now. Um, yeah, revisiting this this period in history is, I think, an important thing. So once again, that's the documentary Vojnarovic, and that is coming to us from our friends at Kino Lorber. Okay, so that's what's new this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. In addition to discussing the films we have available as virtual cinema, each week we also like to discuss some other ideas for films that you can view at home, this being our programmer's picks section. And this week we're going to discuss a landmark crime story underpinned with sardonic black comedy, a film distinguished by its quirky approach to character, dialogue, and storytelling, all hallmarks of the filmmaker's style, which had, up until then, earned them a cult following, but not necessarily mainstream success. All of that changed with this film, Fargo, in 1996 for the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan, at the time still billed separately as director and producer, even though it was always a team approach for all of these duties including writing and editing under the pseudonym Roderick Janes. Fargo, the Coen's sixth feature film, was the brothers' biggest commercial and critical success to date when it came out in 1996. Now, 25 years later, the film still stands out in their body of work and as an exemplar of crime story filmmaking, but also as a film that perhaps has some things to say beyond just being a well-made example of genre filmmaking with comedic beats. Brothers' independently financed and distributed debut film, Blood Simple, was a modest commercial success in 1984, but hailed by critics as the work of promising newcomers, and succeeded in getting them noticed by the studios. That film was also a small-town set crime story with neo-noir bona fides, and like Fargo, starred Francis McDormand, who also married Joel Cohen that same year. The Coens have now made films across a range of genres, but quirky crime stories remain the genre they are most closely associated with. 
and which has also delivered them some of their biggest hits, including Oscar wins. The Coens followed 1984's Blood Simple with three films released by Fox, the screwball romantic crime comedy Raising Arizona, starring Holly Hunter and Nicolas Cage, the period-set gangster tale Miller's Crossing, starring Gabriel Byrne, Albert Finney, and John Turturro, and the oddball nightmare noir Barton Fink, set in Hollywood of the 1940s, starring again John Turturro and John Goodman. In 1994, the Coens experienced their first true flop, The Hudsucker Proxy, a wildly ambitious, only intermittently entertaining, comedic critique of American capitalism and finance set in late 1950s New York, and starring Tim Robbins, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Paul Newman. So for their next film, the Coens were looking to bounce back. Well, and they certainly did bounce back uh, with Fargo. And as you mentioned, Todd, this was really the film that put the Coens on the map for mainstream audiences and kind of cemented their reputation as the quirky kings of American independent cinema, both in the US and worldwide, actually. And I, I think it's kind of perfect that it was Fargo that put them in this position, because to me, especially as someone who saw this film first as a non-American, it is such a quintessentially American film. Um, it's this rural neo-noir about small town life and ordinary folks and the extraordinary greed that can come with the pursuit of the American dream, or at least with the predominant myth about the, the American dream. Because I do think we see two versions of that dream uh, in the film, one based around the material, which of course is critiqued by the Coen brothers, and one more based around community and family. The film has, as Todd mentioned, a full suite of amazingly memorable characters, a mix of dark humor and ultraviolence, wholesomeness and depravity, cynicism and hope, all set very conspicuously against the snowy white backdrop of Minnesota, the Coen brothers' home state, of course, uh, for the most part in the small town of Brainerd and also in the quote unquote big city of Minneapolis, St. Paul. And the film tells the story, ostensibly the true story, if you believe the film's opening card, but we'll get back to that later, of the flailing Minneapolis used car salesman, Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, who gets in way, way over his head after hiring a duo of bungling hitmen, played by Steve Buscemi and Peter Stamar, to kidnap his wife in order to extract a ransom from Jerry's rich but very disapproving father-in-law. And ultimately, Fargo tracks how this pretty ridiculous plan begins to fall apart at the seams after the kidnapping ends up resulting in the killing of three witnesses near the small community of Brainerd, which I mentioned, and the town police chief, Marge Gunderson, played by Francis McDormand, takes on the case. Uh, the Fargo of the film's title is actually a city in North Dakota, not Minnesota, which during the opening scene of the movie is where William H. Macy's Jerry Lundegaard goes to meet Steve Buscemi and Peter Stomar's criminals uh, to set this kidnapping scheme in motion. And ironically, this is actually the only sequence that takes place in Fargo during the entire movie. Uh, apparently, the film's title was a toss-up between Fargo and Brainerd, where the town where most of the film is in fact set. And the Coens just thought that Fargo had a much better ring to it, which I think is true. Although I do love the fact that Brainerd is at the center of this film, and that is in fact a real place. So Fargo walks this very 
deft line between tragedy and comedy that I think you can find in much of the Coen brothers filmography as Todd mentioned and in many key works of American independent cinema of this era it's deadpan but it's dark it's humorous and unnerving it upends the cinematic myth of the master criminal and the perfectly executed heist with this trio of hilariously but also kind of tragically inept wannabe criminals and it does all of this by centering on a very unlikely hero the brainerd police chief marge gunderson who is seven months pregnant the epitome of minnesota nice who maybe doesn't seem like the sharpest tool in the shed at first glance, but who ultimately uses her can-do attitude and her no-nonsense approach to outsmart every single man in the entire film and to get to the bottom of what is a pretty complicated case. In fact, one that even the criminals involved find it hard to keep straight, as you can hear in this clip of William H. Macy's Jerry Lundegaard explaining the plan to Steve Buscemi and Peter Stamar's hitman. And it's a bit of a long clip, but, you know, there's a lot to cover, so enjoy. I, I guess that's it, then. Here are the keys. No, that's not it, Jerry. Huh? The new vehicle plus $40,000. Yeah, but the deal was the car first, then the 40000 like as if it was the ransom. I thought Shep told you. Shep didn't tell us much, Jerry. Well, okay, it's... Except that you were going to be here at 7.30. Yeah, well, that was a mix-up, then. Yeah, you already said that. Yeah. But it, it's not a whole pay in advance deal. See, I give you a brand new vehicle in advance, and then... I'm not going to debate you, Jerry. Okay. I'm not going to sit here and debate. I will say this, though. What Shep told us didn't make a whole lot of sense. Oh, no. It's real sound. It's all worked out. You want your own wife kidnapped? Yeah. You... My point is, you pay the ransom, what, 80000 bucks? I mean, you give us half the ransom, 40000 you keep half. It's like robbing Peter to pay Paul. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, okay. See, it's not me paying the ransom. The thing is, my wife, she's wealthy. Her dad, he's real well off. Now, I'm in a bit of trouble. What kind of trouble are you in, Jerry? Well, that's, that's, I'm not gonna get into, into, see, I just need the money. Now, her dad, he's real well off. So, why don't you just ask him for the money? Or your fucking wife, you know. Or your fucking wife, Jerry. Well... It's all part of this. They don't know I need it, see? Okay, so there's that. And even if they did, I wouldn't get it. So there's that on top then. See, these are personal matters. Personal matters? Yeah, personal matters that needn't... Uh... Okay, Jerry. You're tasking us to perform this mission, but you won't... Uh... You won't... Oh, fuck it. Let's take a look at that Sierra. So there you heard William H. Macy as Jerry Lundegaard, the hapless car salesman who has somehow racked up big debts that he can't pay and has now hatched a harebrained scheme to kidnap his own wife, whose father is the wealthy Wade Gustafson, and then split the ransom with the crooks hired to do the job. Up until this point in 1996, Macy had worked a lot as a character actor in film and television and also on stage, notably in a number of David Mamet plays. But the role of Jerry Lundegaard elevated his stature to a new level, with critical acclaim and an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Since 2011, he's been the star of Showtime's Shameless, which has now kind of become his main brand. But this period of the 1990s going into the 2000s 
was Macy's peak point of being a go-to character actor for both indies and bigger budget studio movies. Jerry Lundergaard is a creep who thinks he's a nice guy, a cheater and a rule breaker who thinks he's an upstanding citizen, a loser who fancies himself a winner. As such, he embodies a particular kind of American character, a Willie Loman updated for the 80s and 90s. I imagine that this must be a difficult role to play, and also one that many stars would shy away from as bad for their brand. But Macy campaigned hard to get the part, and it's also hard to imagine anyone else playing it as well as he did here. As viewers, we recoil at his incompetence, both as a salesman and as an amateur criminal, and also at his evident indifference to the welfare of his wife and son, masked by polite platitudes. Jerry is just as much a villain, perhaps the story's biggest villain, as the characters played by Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare. And speaking, of course, of Steve Buscemi or Buscemi, however you want to pronounce it, uh, he says Buscemi because his dad said Buscemi, but the real actual pronunciation is Buscemi. Um, Anyway, just to get that out of the way. Uh, Speaking of Buscemi and uh, Stormare, we really got to get into those guys as as actors and here in Fargo because they're, they're great as this unlikely comedy duo. So by the time he first worked in a Coen Brothers movie, Steve Buscemi was already pretty well established in the indie film scene, um, working in over a dozen features with an Indie Spirit Award nomination for his role in Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train in 1989. But it was in 1990, just the year after, that he would appear in supporting roles in King of New York, The Grifters, and his first collaboration with the Coens in Miller's Crossing. The following year, he was in Barton Fink, another Coen Brothers film, of course, and his third Coen Brothers film, uh, The Hudsucker Proxy, which, as Todd mentioned, was a a flop, their first one, in 1994. Uh, So by now, he was on his fourth Coen Brothers film and had established himself as kind of a a Coen regular. And uh, the part in Fargo was actually written for him, with him in mind. This fidgety, motormouth, low-level criminal character uh, is, of course right in Buscemi's wheelhouse, and having recently established himself as uh, being in the pantheon of these great antic weirdo performers, um, specifically with his performance in Reservoir Dogs in 1992 as Mr. Pink. Uh, I think that's, that's kind of where he broke out as a, um, beyond the very indie scene into the more mainstream indie scene. And, and this film is... Uh, maybe kind of a similar role to his character he's playing here, Carl. It's a, kind of the menacing, funny guy. And of course, Steve Buscemi does have a distinctive look. I want you to tell me what these fellas look like. Well, the little guy, he was kind of funny looking. In what way? I don't know, just funny looking. Can you be any more specific? I couldn't really say. He wasn't circumcised. Well, what this guy look like, anyways? Oh, he's a... Little guy, kind of funny looking. Uh-huh. In what way? Oh, just in a general kind of way. And of course, he doesn't just look funny here. He is funny. He's, he's really funny in this movie. Um, with this nonstop foul-mouth dialogue that he has, it's really nasty and weaselly, um, but really in the best kind of way, um, delivered by Buscemi. Uh, um, and he just can't help himself when, uh, when he's talking. He can't stop talking. Um, he has to say every little thing that's in his head and it, it just keeps coming out and coming out and 
it's really part of this classic double act that he has with Peter Stormare here, who plays the cold-blooded straight man um, with some really hilarious results. You ever been to Minneapolis? Nope. Would it kill you to say something? I did. No. It's the first thing you've said in the last four hours. That's a... That's a fountain of conversation, man. That's a geyser. I mean, whoa, Teddy, stand back, man. Shit. I'm sitting here driving. Doing all the driving, man. Whole fucking way from Brainerd driving. Just trying to chat. You know, keep our spirits up, fight the boredom of the road. You can't say one fucking thing just in the way of conversation. Oh, fuck it. I don't have to talk either, man. See how you like it. Just total fucking silence. Two could play at that game, smart guy. We'll just see how you like it. Total silence. And like Buscemi, Peter Stormare was already established in his craft, but as a different kind of character actor, the brooding heavy. And unlike Buscemi, Stormare was still a bit on the rise. And it would be Fargo that really launched his career and a career that would go on to include films like Armageddon, Minority Report, and Constantine, to name just a few out of nearly 200 credits. He's also pretty well known for uh, being a voice in the Call of Duty video game series, so uh, a varied career. Um, and incidentally, the Coens were, were actually planning on having the Swedish actor in Miller's Crossing. So he would have made his Coen brothers debut in the same film as Buscemi, uh, but, but that didn't work out. Um, he was, I believe, doing Hamlet on stage at the time and, and couldn't, uh, couldn't make that work. But his debut here in Fargo is really, really good. Uh, possibly my favorite performance of the film. Uh, not a lot of dialogue. As I mentioned, he's a strong but silent type. Um, but he really is the perfect foil for Buscemi uh, with a quiet menace that's actually pretty intimidating. And he also manages to look really cool in scenes, just quietly doing things, especially I think when he's whipping the car around to chase down the guys who happen to see uh, both he and Buscemi on the side of the road after they kill a cop. Um, and once again, just the complete opposite in, in all aspects of, of who Buscemi is. These are both low low-level criminals, um, aspiring to be big time. Um, but I think his, his cold silence here um, works in his favor greatly uh, as, as opposed to Buscemi, who um, just can't stop talking and really just keeps making himself look the opposite of tough. And both Stormare and Buscemi uh, would go on to be in the next Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski. It's actually the last time that they worked with, uh, with the directing team. Stormare plays the nihilist in this film and the, the head nihilist that is in this film. And Buscemi is, of course, Donnie. The character that Stormare plays is kind of similar to the one here in Fargo, but the one that Buscemi plays is, of course, very different. But the interesting thing, I just want to make a quick comparison here, too, is that for me, I hear a lot of the dude in Fargo in Buscemi's character um, in some of his dialogue and the way he delivers it. Uh, specifically on the phone with William H. Macy at one point, he said, circumstances have changed, Jerry. I mean, that wasn't a great impression, but you, you get what I'm saying if you've uh, seen the film. 
Um, and he goes on this long rant about how um, things are different now that the cop is dead, the additional bodies are gone. And that sort of dialogue, I just thought was interesting that it's kind of a precursor to, to the dude and some of the things said in the Big Lebowski. So I thought I would point that out. But of course, you don't get the great comic duo in the Big Lebowski that you get with these two actors, even though they're both in that film. You, you really have to uh, stick with Fargo for, for that great pairing of Peter Stormare and Steve Buscemi. Well, I already talked about this a little bit, but of course the film's central hero and the kind of antidote to the greed and corruption represented by the film's various inept criminals is, of course, Brainerd Police Chief Marge Gunderson, who's kind of the film's avatar for goodness and competency and common sense. And she, of course, is played by the incredible Frances McDormand in the first of her two, possibly to be three, Academy Award-winning roles. And although Frances McDormand doesn't appear until actually about a third of the way into Fargo, her Marge completely steals the show once she arrives on the scene and immediately gets to work as the brilliant detective that she is. Okay, so we got a trooper pull someone over. We got a shooting. These folks drive by. There's a high-speed pursuit, ends here, and then this execution-type deal. Yeah. I'd be very surprised if our suspect was from Brainerd. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, from his footprint, he looks like a big fella. You see something down there, Chief? No, I just think I'm gonna barf. Jeez. You okay, Margie? Yeah, I'm fine. It's just morning sickness. Well, that passed. So, of course, in 2021, Frances McDormand is known as one of the most acclaimed actresses of her generation. She has numerous accolades to her name. She has two Academy Awards, two Emmy Awards, and also a Tony Award, by the way. So she is in that select category of performers who have all three of those things. Um, but in the mid-90s, when she came on board to do Fargo, she was still relatively early on in her career. And it was already a career that was intertwined with that of the Coen brothers, as Todd had mentioned a little bit earlier. She made her screen debut in 1984 in the Coen brothers' feature debut, Blood Simple, also the same year as her Broadway debut. Uh, she then appeared in a 1987 follow-up, Raising Arizona, and then in a slew of uncredited roles uh, in Coen Brothers films, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy, all in the run-up to Fargo. Um, but while she was still relatively early in her career at this point, uh, when she appeared in Fargo, McDormand was actually, in fact, already an Oscar nominee. She'd snagged an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Alan Parker's 1988 Mississippi Burning. She'd also worked with Ken Loach on his 1990 film Hidden Agenda, with Sam Raimi on 1990's Darkman, and with Robert Altman in Shortcuts in 1993. And then after winning her first Oscar for Fargo, McDormand would go on to be nominated again in 2000 for Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, and again in 2005 for Nikki Caro's North County, before winning her second lead actress Oscar in 2018 for Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, in which she plays another very determined woman on a mission to solve a crime in small town America. And then her possible third acting Oscar is coming right up 
for her role in Chloe Giles' Nomadland, for which she could also actually win in the Best Picture category as the film's producer. And of course, McDormand has worked with the Coen brothers on a number of films uh, since Fargo, including The Man Who Wasn't There, Burn After Reading, Hail Caesar. And she's really become known for playing unconventional, headstrong female characters across a wide swath of American independent cinema, working with directors such as John Sayles, Lisa Cholodenko, Nikki Caro, Nicole Holofcener, Gus Van Sant, Wes Anderson, and now, of course, Chloe Jo with uh, Nomadland. And Nomadland, again, like Fargo, is a very American film, and it's a film about people and places on the fringes of uh, the stories that are usually told in mainstream American cinema. And I think this persona that Frances McDormand has crafted over the years and that comes through in many and many of her roles, however different, this kind of straightforward, no-frills, perseverance, no-nonsense, down-to-earthness and smarts, kind of started with Marge Gunderson in Fargo. She's this very competent policewoman who fundamentally just can't comprehend why people would be driven to commit these terrible crimes for, as she puts it in the film, just a little bit of money. And she's committed to doing everything she can in the kindest possible way to stand in the way of this and single-handedly, with a ton of Minnesota nice, crack the case. Mr. Lundegaard? Huh? Yeah. Could I take just a minute of your time here? What... What is it all about? Huh? Do you mind if I sit down? Carrying quite a load here. You're the owner here, Mr. Lundegaard? Nah, I, executive sales manager. Well, you can help me. My name's Marge Gunderson. My father-in-law. He's the owner. Uh-huh. Well, I'm a police officer from Up Brainerd investigating some malfeasance, and I was just wondering if you'd had any new vehicles stolen off the lot in the past couple of weeks. Specifically a Tancala Sierra. Mr. Lundegaard. Brainerd? Yeah, yeah. Home of Paul Bunyan, Babe the Blue Ox. Babe the Blue Ox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we got that big statue up there. <laughs> so, you haven't had any vehicles go missing then? Nope, no ma'am. Okie dokie, thanks a bunch. I'll let you get back to your paperwork then. Well, in addition to everyone that we've just discussed among the top build cast, a hallmark of all of the Coen Brothers films is the excellent character actors throughout the supporting cast. And among the other notable cast members here would be John Carroll Lynch as Norm Gunderson, Marge's husband and uh, duck stamp painter. Lynch is a terrific character actor with memorable turns in David Fincher's Zodiac, among many other movies. Also, his lone directorial effort, a film called Lucky from 2017, starred Harry Dean Stanton in one of that actor's final and finest roles. Uh, it's just an excellent movie, uh, Lucky from 2017. Please check it out if you haven't yet seen it yourself. Also, Steve Park as Mike Yanagita. Yanagita features in a, a rather odd scene as a former high school classmate of Marge's who reaches out to her after seeing her on the news coverage of the case. And, and this little scene that takes place where they have a, a, a meetup in a hotel bar, it, it doesn't really relate to the rest of the plot. And I think it's, it's kind of puzzled people why, why it's even in there in, in the movie, but 
I think that this scene works in subtle ways to nudge Marge's understanding of people's mysterious motives and and the pain and anger that might be behind uh, other people's public facades. Um, so I think it actually is is working to introduce certain elements in, into the story and our understanding of of Marge's thought processes as she's working the case and and ultimately solves it. And Park has remained very busy as a character actor over the years since Fargo and appeared again for the Coens and again in a Minnesota set role in 2009's A Serious Man. And then we also have Harvey Presnell as Wade Gustafson. Now, actually, Presnell is fairly high up in the billing uh, in his role as Wade. Um, Presnell was a big star in musical stage theater all through the, the 60s and the 70s including film versions of The Unsinkable Molly Brown and Painter Wagon. But by this time in 1996, he had been out of movies for a long time. Uh, But this role really, it was a comeback role. It really gave him a late career boost and led to him getting other uh, other roles in some large budget, prominent Hollywood productions, including, among other things, Saving Private Ryan. And I had forgotten just how good Presnell was here as the hard case patriarch Wade until I rewatched the film uh, earlier this week. He's excellent and a big part of what makes this film so good. And I think we can safely say that another major character in Fargo, one that for the most part is playing itself and sadly was not nominated for any Oscars at all, is the film's snow-filled Minnesota setting. And especially for many non-American viewers, I think that this setting is a big part of the film's appeal and why it became so iconic. You know, like many of the Coen brothers' films, Fargo is set in an America that people outside of America, in fact, people inside America too, don't get to see that often in cinema, you know, places that are not LA or New York, but that still have their own distinctive traits and cultures and landmarks and accents. Because of course you could also argue that another of the film's key characters is in fact the Minnesota accent, which all of the characters seem to pull off, uh, in my opinion, as a non-Minnesotan British person, pretty flawlessly. And again, Minnesota was the Coen brothers' home state, and Fargo is in many ways a love letter, granted quite a twisted one, to their home and to the people that live there. And honestly, for someone who grew up outside the US in a weird way, this setting is kind of exotic and otherworldly in a way that many Hollywood films just just aren't. The film was actually shot on location in Minnesota and North Dakota, uh, although none of it was actually filmed in Fargo itself. As I mentioned, the North Dakota town where the narrative begins and that gave the film its title. Fargo's signature snow-filled scenery, however, was not shot for the most part exactly in the locations where it's set, uh, namely, as I mentioned, Fargo, Brainerd, and Minneapolis, mainly due to the fact that Minnesota was having a very, very warm winter that year, and the production kept having to travel further and further north into northern Minnesota and northeastern North Dakota to find snow. At some points, the production team had to truck snow in from elsewhere or use snowmaking equipment to create the film's now unforgettable snow-covered look and the cold white landscape that dominates much of the film. 
And shooting this distinctive scenery was master cinematographer Roger Deakins and his third of 12 collaborations with the Coens. And his aim was to make the film look as cold and bleak as possible using a palette of white and gray and this dull blue light. And he was so committed to this, in fact, that he was reportedly very irritated every time they had a rare, bright and sunny day on the shoot. And then also leaning into the Minnesotaness of the film, uh, composer Carter Burwell in his sixth of 16 collaborations with the Coens did the score here with the film's main musical motif, which we had at the beginning, based on a Norwegian folk song called The Lost Sheep. And of course, that is a nod to another snow-filled wonderland where, of course, many Minnesotans have roots, as is evidenced by the very Scandinavian sounding last names of many of Fargo's key characters. And of course, as we've touched upon a few times now, uh, the film was really quite a success, both commercially and critically, um, earning two Oscar wins, one for Best Actress for Frances McDormand and the other for Best Screenplay for the Coen Brothers. Uh, the film was also nominated for an additional five Oscars, one for editing, cinematography, director, supporting actor, and picture. And after playing commercially in the US, UK, and Canada, uh, the film went on to the Cannes Film Festival where Joel Cohen took home Best Director. The film also swept its nominations at the Indie Spirit Awards, taking home Best Film, Director, Male Lead, Female Lead, Screenplay, and Cinematography. And on a budget of $7 million, uh, the final box office came in at over $60 million. So it was an unqualified uh, financial success as well, um, one that would cement the Coen brothers as two of the best filmmakers in the game, two of the best working um, as a duo or otherwise. And up to that point, they'd had some commercial success and critical success. And I would say maybe the biggest one was Raising Arizona, um, but the results were maybe still a little bit more mixed in both the reception critically and at the box office up to this point. Um, as Todd mentioned, more of um, cult filmmakers than mainstream filmmakers, but for Fargo, the praise was nearly universal. And of course, the box office was really good. Both Siskel and Ebert, in fact, uh, gave the film two thumbs way up and put it at the top of their respective lists for best of 1996. So yes, Siskel and Ebert, like pretty much all of the critics, praised Fargo at the time. As, as Ben just related, it, it, won, it won a couple of Oscars. So you might expect that when the Coen brothers followed up Fargo with their next film, uh, returning in 1998 with The Big Lebowski, you might think that the press and the public hailed the brothers for following their Oscar-winning triumph with a worthy successor and, and one that advanced their, their filmmaking accomplishments. Well, that was not the case, decidedly not the case. The public simply did not turn out for The Big Lebowski when it was in theaters, and the critics, by and large, panned it. It may seem hard to believe or remember now, but during the 80s and 90s, the film critics found a lot to critique in the Coen Brothers films. Or one critic would praise one film and, and pan the next and sort of grade one against the other. It was not the case that they were receiving universal praise at this time. Uh, and in fact, they were somewhat of a, of a favorite target for, for certain critics of that era. 
And the big Lebowski seems to have received that kind of critical disapproval, perhaps consciously or not, also as a kind of taking down a peg after the success of Fargo. But of course, the last laugh on this one goes to the Coen brothers and the millions of fans of The Big Lebowski, which over time has grown to become one of the biggest, truest cult classic films of all time. And in terms of their future filmmakings, the Coen brothers hardly missed a beat. Uh, They continued on. Of course, now here we are in 2021. They've made a lot of films very regularly, uh, but Beyond Lebowski, we had 2000's O Brother, Where Art Thou? The Depression-era South-set retelling of Homer's The Odyssey, featuring folk and country music. Yes, really? So they hardly uh, became more conservative in what they attempted to do following uh, the failure of Lebowski to connect right away. And then, of course, No Country for Old Men in 2007, uh, their biggest triumph, one that compares in a lot of interesting ways with Fargo. Uh, No Country for Old Men won four Oscars, including Best Picture, and they followed up soon after that with 2010's True Grit, uh, a true Western, something that they seem to have been moving ever closer to doing uh, throughout their career. Uh, True Grit, a huge commercial success at the time, uh, which earned 10 Oscar nominations. And most recently, uh, another Western film, 2018's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And those are just some of the bigger commercial and and critical successes for the Coens during all of the intervening years following Fargo. They've made a dozen films since Fargo, uh, including many with passionate cult followings beyond uh, that, beyond the Big Lebowski, but also films like 2001's film noir throwback, The Man Who Wasn't There, uh, 2008's spy spoof, Burn After Reading, 2009's Kafka-esque Jewish Minnesota tale, A Serious Man, which in my estimation is one of their greatest films. Also 2013's Greenwich Village folk scene story Inside Lewin Davis and 2016's classic Hollywood spoof Hail Caesar. So they've now had 18 features. They've tripled their filmic output since Fargo came along in 1996. But through it all, through the all these decades and all of these films, Fargo remains one of their defining works in the minds of critics and fans alike. And it's so defining, in fact, that uh, it's spawned an anthology series of the same name in 2014, created by Noah Hawley for FX. Uh, The series takes place in the same universe as the movie and was signed off on by the Coen brothers themselves, who served as executive producers. And as an anthology series, each season is its own contained story with distinct characters, settings, etc. But the one thing that they all share is this dark comedic tone that, of course, was borrowed from the film, from the Coen's work. And uh, they also have some direct references to the Coen brothers along the way, Uh, some little Easter eggs if you're paying attention. And the series creator, Noah Howley, actually has a pretty interesting way of seeing um, Fargo and the Fargo-verse, for lack of a better word. Um, For the show, he sees each season as part of a large leather-bound book. That's the history of crime in the Midwest. And each season serves as a different chapter. Um, And the movie itself is another part of this large leather-bound book of the crime in the Midwest and is itself another chapter. Um, The series has now run for four seasons, with the latest ending in November of last year. And I don't want to get too deep into the details of the series. It's won awards, it's been heralded by critics, 
but really that's kind of its own podcast in and of itself. There's, there's a lot to talk about with, with Fargo, the TV show. Um, but I did catch the first two seasons myself and I really enjoyed it. It's, it's not something that I would have thought I needed or um, would maybe even like, but uh, the whole book of crime in the Midwest framing is kind of a, a pretty good way to look at it and a pretty good way to appreciate um, this new work that came out of uh, the Fargoverse and kind of was built here from, from the film in 1996, of course. And another thing that the Fargo TV series kept from the original film is the perhaps slightly misleading based on a true story announcement that famously appears in the film's opening credits. And while the Coen's story about the origins of Fargo's story has changed over time, when they were actually shooting the film, they apparently did tell the cast and crew that the events depicted in Fargo had all really happened. And they've never completely given up on saying that the events in the film have some basis in fact, uh, but they have admitted that they're more of an amalgam of various weird American crimes that have happened in history, like the case of the General Motors Finance Corporation employee who committed fraud by manipulating car serial numbers, just like Jerry Lundegaard does, or the grisly murder of Helle Crafts, a Connecticut woman who was killed by her husband and disposed of in a wood chipper, which is the fate suffered by, spoiler alert, Steve Buscemi's character. And then in more recent years, Joel Cohen has moved a little bit further away from that based on a true story narrative around Fargo, saying that what they really wanted to do was make a movie in the genre of a of a true story movie, you know, kind of like a fictionalized true crime podcast, because that is actually a thing I've discovered. And the thing about the Fargo narrative, as ridiculous as it might sound, if you just spell it out, crazy plot point by crazy plot point, it's actually something that you can imagine really did happen in some far off corner of America that we don't often hear about. I mean, the Tiger King is a true story, another story about a uniquely American style of greed and hubris. So Fargo could completely be a true story. And clearly fans of the movie after the initial release were convinced that the Coen Brothers film was indeed based on a true story and that the million dollars or the million dollars minus the $80,000 that uh, Steve Buscemi's character buries in the snow near Brainerd was just there waiting to be found. And reportedly after the film's release, the whole area was kind of swarmed by movie fans searching for the buried cash. Um, in fact, in 2001, a Japanese woman named Takako Konishi was found frozen to death near Detroit Lakes in Minnesota after which a rumor emerged that she had been one of these Fargo fans searching for the buried money and had got lost and sadly frozen to death. And this story, an actual true story inspired by a fake true story, became the basis of another more recent American indie, uh, David Zelmer's 2014 Kumiko the Treasure Hunter. So the influence of the, the Fargoverse, the term that Ben just invented, I think, but I like, continues to extend far and wide and appropriately, I would say, in some very weird and sadly tragic ways. So as we're talking about Fargo here in 2021, it, it occurs to me a lot of people out there perhaps know this as the series Fargo and, and actually have not seen the original feature film. Um, if, if, any, if that applies to any of you listening to this podcast, please go back and watch the feature film because it's excellent and it will 
uh, further your appreciation of the Fargoverse, which is now officially uh, a thing uh, coined by, by, by Ben and Abby. Uh, I'm, I'm co-signing that as well. Uh, and even if you you did you have seen Fargo way back when it's you know 25 years later now here maybe you haven't seen it since it first came out that was certainly the case with me and it was uh, wonderful to revisit the film this this past week getting ready to do this this podcast the film really really holds up well uh, it it remains one of the the Cohen's greatest achievements. And it's just fascinating to also recognize what uh, some of the some of the cast have done in the intervening years. Um, so very much worth uh, a, a revisit uh, here 25 years later. And with all that said, uh, we're going to leave you with one more clip. Um, this one that's particularly funny. It's not exactly a singular clip from the, from the film Fargo. It's a supercut uh, of all the yeahs that are said um, in the film. And just an example of uh, the way that the Coen brothers' attention to detail, in this case, the accent, um, all that really adds up to amplifying the the true crime nature of the film and the based on a true story narrative. And you can you can see why people um, maybe believe that that was true. Um, but also, it's just a really funny clip. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, is that useful to you? Oh, you betcha, yeah. 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 Okay, yeah. So that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we hope that you see something that you love this week. And definitely not doing a Minnesota accent, sorry. But bye, everyone, and have a great weekend. Thanks for listening, everybody. I am also not doing a Minnesota accent, but Todd, I'm glad you did. Uh, it was really good. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and joins us for the next one. A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com silver. And a portion of the proceeds from screening these titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at AFI.com. You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at AFI Silver Theater and on Twitter at AFI Silver. And music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more of their work on their website at sessions.blue.